socio-political issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Sally. Welcome to episode 53 of You Don't Have to Yell, the first episode in the second year of this podcast. OM goodness. It's the bod boy of nonpartisan political podcasting here. And a recurring theme in the last two episodes has been the crisis of reliable information in America. With the sheer amount of news coming at us on a daily basis from different venues of varied credibility, it is near impossible for Americans to agree on what is real and what isn't. And that is what makes our next guest super relevant. Arjun Murthy, a former colleague of mine and friend, went on to found The Factual, a site and newsletter that helps people cut through the fog in terms of which news is good and which news is junk by giving credibility ratings to each article and also offering information on partisan spin. Now, I'm not going to tell you how it works, both because I don't want to spoil the surprise and because I don't know, but Arjun's going to, and he does a great job at it. So listen on. I'll be back at the end with final thoughts. It's very interesting we're speaking now for for two reasons, um, which is number one, the, the last two episodes I've put out Um, one recurring theme that's come out is that there is a, almost like a crisis, uh, of, of information, uh, in, in, I would say the world right now, definitely in, in U S politics. Um, second part of that is that, um, as, as I told you, I just drove with my family from Boston to Tampa and back. And when I was, making the decision as to whether to continue with the trip or not, I had a real tough time getting non-sensational information, Hmm. uh, you know, on what the situation on the ground was. And so I want to dive into that a little further, but I'm going to, first question is going to be the easiest one, which is, can you tell the folks listening, you know, your name and and what you do? Sure. Um, So I'm Arjun Morthy. I'm a co-founder and CEO of The Factual. Um, I've been doing this for about four years. I co-founded it with my uh, friend, Ajoy Sojin, who is our CTO, and he's really the brains behind the operation. Um, and before this, I was at HubSpot for about six years doing business development and channel sales. And uh, yeah, you know, by training, I'm an engineer turned uh, business person, sort of mediocre at both and trying to find <laughs> uh, something useful to do with my life and stumbled on this idea. Well, I think you're a pretty great business person. I've never seen, I've never seen your engineering shop, so I'll take your word for it on that one. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah, and so can you? So what? What? Ex- what does the factual do then? So the factual helps people find credible news on trending topics, mm-hmm. and it does this by rating news articles for credibility uh, using an algorithm that's transparent and consistent and easy to understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does this for about 10,000 articles every day across thousands of sites. And then we curate the best articles, the most credible ones across the political spectrum on these trending topics in a daily email newsletter as well mm-hmm. as a website. 
Yeah. Yeah. And so obviously I, I subscribe and I've been reading it. And one of the coolest things I've found is number one, that the credibility rating. So for, for those of you listening, uh, there is a, a percent rating as to the reliability of the information. Uh, and NPR got a B oddly enough on one of the, <laughs> on one of the emails, which I think they'd be fairly chagrined to hear. And, uh, and then it also gives a, uh, an indication of political bias or political leaning. Um, and I, I, I definitely want to dig into that as well, but I guess for starters, like what, what got you or what, what prompted you to start the factual in the first place? Um, I think at a high level, there's uh, stupidity, naivety, and arrogance in about okay. equal parts. <laughs> That's honest. <laughs> yeah. I think if you talk to any startup founder, uh, there's usually some of that going on. And, and I say this, you know, a little bit tongue in cheek, um, the truth is, uh, you know, most of my life, I, this is going to sound terribly uh, trite, uh, Dan, but, you know, most of my life, I don't think my mom has ever known what the heck I do for work. Uh-huh. Like, I'll tell her, I'll be like, yeah, we're doing this thing and acronym, acronym. And she's like, I don't know what you're saying, kid. Um, so after HubSpot, you know, HubSpot was a very, very good experience. I learned just a tremendous amount from the management team and particularly from Brian Halligan there. Um and so I left. Uh, when we moved to California, uh, I knew I was going to leave and, and do something different. And I always wanted to see if I could do something of my own, really, you know, put all of my training to, to the test. And when I met Ajoy, uh, we met through a mutual friend. We were talking about ideas. He had just finished a startup of his own that had done pretty well. Um, so both of us had a little bit of a cushion from having come off nice startups. And we said, you know, what, what could we do that we believe in so much that we could spend a decade or more working on it. Because one of the observations I had is it takes about a decade to really make an impact in anything. You know, I joined about four and a half years into HubSpot's journey. And I feel like we didn't really hit our stride until year nine or 10, which is crazy. So yeah, so Ajoy and I basically said, you know, what were things that we believe in that we could work on for a decade? One of the things we noticed was that most of our conversations revolved around news kind of geeky that way. Mm-hmm. And increasingly, our conversations stopped being about the issue and started being about the news itself. And, you know, we'd say, I'd say, oh, yeah, did you read this? And you would say, well, of course, you would hear that from that outlet or, you know, that's completely biased. Like, did you see what this other side was saying? I was like, really, that doesn't even make any sense. And, and so we stopped being able to discuss any issues in a meaningful way. Uh, and we thought this is kind of annoying and, and really counterproductive. And we looked and saw that a lot of people had the same uh, gripes with the news. So, of course, being very naive engineers, we're like, oh, yeah, technology can solve this problem. Um, and wow, is that, uh, is that a gross underestimate, simplification, whatever you want to call it? Yeah. Um, so we had a bunch of ideas. And it's taken a while to actually get where we are. And the first few ideas failed miserably. The first idea we had uh, was to help people take action when they read the news. So people said, you know, what's the point of reading the news? I can't do anything about it. So yeah, we said, and that oh, was Civic well, Owl, right? Yeah, that was the original company, yeah. Civic Owl. So we created this button called the Give a Damn button. Okay. Uh, and it attached to uh, news articles. And if you clicked on it, it would look at the contents of the article and your location and say, hey, you're in you know, Somerville, Massachusetts, uh, you're talking, you're reading an article on race relations here, your local state, federal representatives, this is what they've said about the issue. 
and click here to email or call them. Um, and so we, you know, asked a bunch of people and they were like, that's cool. Like, that's really useful. We said, great. And we went off and built it and we found that nobody used it. Okay. And, we, and we're like, wait, but all of you said it was cool. Why aren't you using it? And there are a variety of reasons, but the one that we picked up on was people saying, you know, you want me to take action with the news. You want me to do something. I don't even know what to do. I don't know what to say. I, I don't even know if, the, if I know enough about this issue. And, and what if this article I'm reading is no good and I mm -hmm. share it with my senator? She's going to think I'm an idiot. I don't want to do that. Mm. Um, so we said, oh, well, if you want to be educated on an issue, well, we can do that. We can help you find uh, really great news articles on a topic. So that's actually why we wrote the algorithm. It was to find high-quality, very credible news. So when I started this podcast, one of the catalysts behind it was this interminably long Facebook debate I got into with an old uh, buddy of mine from college on climate change. What I realized at the time was that we had more information available to back up our respective opinions. And only one of us can be right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, you know, we only had, we had, we had more information than we had time on planet earth and yeah. we could spend the rest of our lives throwing spreadsheets and different sources back and forth to each other. And, and so I realized we, we really, we were in this weird spot where, uh, ironically unprecedented access to information actually made us all dumber. Yeah. And, you know, so originally my goal was to help people, help us establish some common ground. Um, and eventually that evolved into, into more of a, a, a political goal with the, with the realization that at least here in the U.S., because our decisions are binary, uh, it's a lot easier to muddy the waters. And yeah. so I won't, I won't drag you into that, but, but this is very much in line with kind of what, what a trend I observed, which is folks... Uh, folks tend to evidence build uh, with the, what they have available on the internet than they do kind of question or, or seek answers. And, uh, and, and, and I really feel that this is a, a, a crisis scenario in a way. Getting into the, the, the technology behind it, like, so for example, you have the, the, the partisan lean. Like, how do you guys, how do you figure that out? Sure. So the partisan lean, the data for that comes from a couple of sources. One is, mm -hmm a site called Media Bias Fact Check, uh, which is run by a small group out of the Carolinas. Mm -hmm. And it's been used in some research uh, by Google and, and The Economist and things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, another is called All Sides, and they, they have more of a user rating-driven system. Mm -hmm. And then there's also an algorithm that helps you figure out the overall lean of a political uh, or, or a news outlet. We haven't started using that very much, but uh, it's been used to analyze the political bias of Wikipedia or really any large body of text. Okay. Um, so between the three, we sort of triangulate to get a political lean for an outlet. Um, mm -hmm. Now, the interesting thing about political lean is it's actually very hard to, to say uh, the leaning of an outlet in a way that everyone can agree on it because mm -hmm. people don't even agree on a baseline. Like you, you think, you know, it's, it's biased relative to what? Well, what's the what's the what part? What's the neutral? What's the baseline? Yeah, and so that's actually hard enough for people to agree on. So what we say on the political bias is 
Look, this is a general lean as most people tend to think about this news outlet. It doesn't mean everyone necessarily agrees on it. It's a little bit of contextual information as you go into reading this article. Uh, and really, that's at the end of it, that's what we're trying to do with the political lean and the credibility grade is give you context. You're coming across all these news sites these days. It's no longer just you know two or three news outlets like it was in the in the fifties and the sixties. You know, there's a thousand of them in the United States at least, and you don't know what's going to show up in your social media feed or in the search results. And so, what we're saying is, let's give you some context on any article you come across, and we give you four pieces of information aside from the bias. So this is really the core of the algorithm. We uh, look at how opinionated it is. Uh, or how neutral its tone of writing is. We look at how well evidenced and sourced it is. So does it have a lot of links and quotes that are meaningful and relevant and credible? Then we look at the author's expertise. Have they written about this topic a lot before? Do they predominantly write about this topic? How do those previous articles rate for sources and tone? And basically try to get a sense or if they're a beat reporter that really focuses on an issue. And then a site reputation, which is a sort of a historical average of all the authors and articles for that site. It's funny because obviously I speak with a lot of people of all political stripes. And typically they actually fall further to either the left or the right than most. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've yet to meet one person who doesn't consider themselves middle of the road. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, right. Every, everybody's a centrist. you know, everybody's a centrist and, or at least they're, they're kind of coming from their normal. And, and do you find, I know obviously civic owl kind of taught you that people have a tough time taking action. Um, what has your experience been as far as, you know, how folks like the truth or how folks like their, their information couched like that? Yeah, so this, I think, has also been a very interesting sort of social science observation, uh, which is we thought people are really wedded to their viewpoints. And in fact, there's plenty of research that says, you know, your, your framing of the world affects how you take in information and you sort of dig in your heels when you encounter information that's mm-hmm. different from it. And we thought, ah, this is, I don't know how many people are going to like this. But we've been really pleasantly surprised with how well the newsletter and the site have done and how much people are gravitating to it. And I think if you talk to people, this is what they tell us. This is what they tell us on our, on our Facebook page and in comments and replying to the newsletter. They say, I just want the information. I just want the facts. You know, give me a little bit of perspective on different sides of the political spectrum, the left, the right, and all that. But at the bare bones, what happened? What's the information? What are the facts? And let me have the information to make my own conclusions. And so that's what we strive to do. We strive to give them the information, uh, take these little extracts from different news articles across political spectrum, say, this is what's happening. This is how different people are talking about it. Here's a couple of different perspectives. Here's a lot more history and context. If you want to understand how we got to this point, wrap it up into a neat little package. And that format has seemed to work for people truly across the political spectrum. And I say this because, you know, we recruit some of our users through Facebook ads. And so we have a sense for their political leaning based on, you know, Facebook's targeting options. And we thought, you know, we're a California startup. Everyone's going to think we're liberal anyways. We're probably only going to attract liberal people. But we literally recruit almost 50-50 just by virtue of, you know, how the algorithm is scored and, and targeted. And 
we seem to have just as many replies to our newsletter in terms of comments or or suggestions from people from the left and people from the right. It's fascinating. I, I you know, I think our hypothesis has been that there is this very large silent majority in in the U.S. that is a little bit of left and a little bit of right. I, I, like you said, Dan, I think they think they're centrist, even if maybe they don't always vote that way. They think they are. And they feel that increasingly the news doesn't represent what they want. It seems very polarized, very partisan, very filled with anger. And they're like, that's not what I want. I don't want to spend my time rage clicking. I'd like to just get the information and move on with my life. I've got kids to play with and feed and, and work to do. And I just need to know this information so I can make good decisions. That's it. Did you invent rage clicking or is that <laughs> because I've never heard that before? I don't think so. I feel like I read that somewhere, but uh, it's yeah. so perfect. It's yeah. so perfect. Yeah. Well, and that's, uh, there aren't a lot of instances where I, where I think we get a, a piece of really great news on this podcast, but the, <laughs> but the, but the fact that you have people from both the left and the right looking at this, uh, I think is, I think is, is really, really a bright spot. Uh, because I've, I've more or less soured on the, the major media entirely at this point, uh, in the sense that I, and, and this kind of gets back to my, you know, the trip to Florida that I was mm-hmm. taking, which is, you know, all I wanted to know was what was the situation on the ground in Florida? You know, what was, what was going on? And instead what I got were people who either wanted to, or I shouldn't say people, I, you know, outlets that either were looking to slam uh, Trump's push to reopen States or were looking to kind of support, something Trump said periodically, which is, or said enough, which is, you know, the pandemic's not real or it's, or, you know, you don't have to wear a mask. You don't have to do all these things. And I couldn't for the life of me find a source that just said, here's the situation. And so I ultimately had to go on a, uh, number one, there was, there's a dashboard, uh, for those in Florida, Florida COVID action, which you probably already know, frankly, yep. but um, but what that does is that tells you ICU bed availability and caseload. And I figured if I know that there is ICU bed availability and that number isn't declining precipitously, then I know we're probably okay. Yeah. Um, and then uh, number two, you know, I asked. Uh, I asked my uh, you know my neighbor who's a doctor. Uh, I asked a friend of mine who. Uh, is a nurse working at Faulkner in Boston who actually treated COVID patients. Um, and both told me, you know, you're all right. This is, this is fine. Um, you know, you, as long as you, again, as long as you take precautions. Yeah, exactly. That was it. And it was just simple, yeah. wear a mask, you know, avoid crowded places and, uh, and, you know, just take all the normal precautions you would back home. And so that's exactly what we did. And uh, I, I, to me, I, I feel like that's the, the biggest danger—I mean, in a lot of ways, the the biggest danger in that situation is the fact that I'm making a decision that is literally could be life or death, uh, and 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 it's that slant that keeps me from doing so. So, I mean, I'd say in terms of like what you're doing, um, it's it's number one, it's needed. Number two, it's it's really encouraging to know that everybody feels that way for the most part. 
Yeah, I definitely has been a very pleasant surprise uh, to us as well. And, you know, eventually we're going to, we're extending the platform to do things like uh, have a, a place where people can discuss the news. And we have some really good um, ideas on how to make sure that it occurs in a civil manner uh, and a mm-hmm. useful manner. But I'm really glad that we have this very, very diaspora uh, of readers. We have, I think, every state uh, represented in our user base. We have rural and urban. We have, uh, I think, about 35 countries as well already. So a very wide-ranging group and a group that generally reads uh, high-quality mm-hmm. news because that's our product. So you're starting with a, a slice of Americans and, and people around the world that care about credible news, that care about getting high-quality information that are from different parts of the political spectrum in different parts of our society, different jobs, blue-collar, white-collar, urban, rural, all the stuff. Um, so eventually, I think when we find a good way uh, to open it up for comments, things like that, I think you'll start to see just a much better conversation. Like, you know, at the heart of it, we like talking about the news. I mean, you went and asked your your neighbor and your colleagues and friends about this situation in Florida, and you were doing it because you were about to make a decision. But also, you know, like talking about the news, it's a very, very common thing that we do day to day. And we want to do it in a way that doesn't feel like it's so fraught with risk and you're going to get into a fight. Like, I don't know about you, Dan, but I shy away from talking about the news a lot now, whether mm-hmm. it's sometimes with certain family members. I certainly don't talk about it on social ever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Never. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's unfortunate because, you know, it, it's only when you talk to people that you hear all these perspectives and nuance and it's like, wow, I never thought about that. Like, that's such a good point. That really changes or adds to my thinking on this topic and overall has a moderating effect. The more good perspectives I read, the more I feel like we have a moderating effect on the beliefs we have. Like, mm-hmm. I really think, you know, we should or should not open up the economy, but it becomes like less of a hardline rule and more like, but I can understand if you're in this situation or this situation, or this is the environment or community you're living in, and this is the information you're seeing, or this is the, the trade-offs you're having to make. I get where you're coming from. It might be different to me, but I'm not going to hate you for it, and I'm not going to slam you for it. I think that's what we want the world to get to, or at least through our product. Hi there. I hope you're enjoying today's show, and I wanted to take a quick break from the soothing timber of Arjun's voice to get your help in getting more people to join in the fight against hyperpartisanship in this country. Now, the fact that Arjun, a person with both software development and business experience, saw enough of an opportunity in cutting through disinformation that he decided to build a business off it should let you know how big the problem of inaccurate news is in the United States. And you listen to You Don't Have to Yell because you want more than the partisan talking points that typically oversimplify the diversity of voices in this country down to red and blue. And we need to bring more people like you into the conversation to make this change happen. So one way you can help right now on your phone or whatever device you're listening to this on, share YDHTY. You can also visit YDHTY.com or find You Don't Have to Yell on Facebook and Twitter with additional content. Lastly, if you want to stop by your favorite podcasting watering hole and leave us a review, I would be tickled pink. 2029 
is the year multipartisan democracy comes to the United States and with 50 million voters unaffiliated with either party, there are more than enough of us to make this happen. We just need to get the word out. So as always, I appreciate you listening and your support. And now back to the show. I'll I'll ask you maybe more of an, an abstract question. Um, or maybe more of a philosophical question and feel free to comment or not. But, um, you know, again, kind of, I'll, I'll use Florida as an example. Um, one of the things I did in, in researching my trip was I, I looked at kind of what were the caseloads over time. And, and what you actually notice is you notice that when, when, at least here in Massachusetts, when we were having the peak, when we were, when we were mm-hmm. at the surge, you know, f- the Sunbelt states that are seeing a lot of trouble now actually weren't that bad. So, you know, in terms of cases per thousand and new cases and all the metrics they were using, they were actually right about where Massachusetts was when we started loosening up restrictions. And um, and 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 I feel like what happened uh, during that period of time is the conversation became so much you're either open or closed. We never bothered to think, is it affecting all regions equally? That's right. Um, and, and, and I think one of the one of the issues i see is that our media is national yet our experiences aren't in a way so you know and 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 i don't know if you've looked into this at all but you know one of the things i think is with our reliance on national news as opposed to local news um it seems like that kind of contributes to that disconnect would you agree there or definitely definitely very very true um you know, and part of it is news is a little bit of entertainment. That's a real problem. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of the most entertaining stuff is at the national level. Like the local politics, like, ah, blah, you know. <laughs> it's, it's just not that exciting. And and we're, we're humans. We, we want the entertainment, the excitement. So we gravitate to this national. And you're right. I think it's having this effect where it's disconnected from the reality we see locally. Um mm-hmm. So I think you're very right on that. One of the interesting things is that, you know, the U.S. gets slammed a lot for its COVID response and, and certainly deserves a fair amount of criticism. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have, to com- you have to think of the U.S. as a very, very large heterogeneous region akin to the European Union. Mm-hmm. And to think that, you know, the European Union could pass one rule for all, whatever, 20, 30 countries to operate in just doesn't happen that way. Yeah. And similarly in the United States, as unsatisfying as the answer is to say, the federal government can't just say this is one thing that everyone has to do in lockstep. It's, you do have to come out with these guidelines and say, look, if this is what your community is seeing, then you should be taking this action. But if you're a different community seeing this, then you should take a different action. It's not a very satisfying answer, but it's probably the most honest answer. Um, so yes, there could have been lots done better. Expectations could have been set better. Lots and lots of criticism to go around. But I think also there's not... People who wanted like a certainty and think that if we had only done A, B, and C, this would have been a whole lot better and, and everything would have been avoided. I, that's just not likely to be true. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's interesting, too, because the, the one thing I said very early on when people were getting when, – when people were frothing at the mouth about the, the outbreak here in the U.S. is that, you know, every other country saw one for the most part or every yeah. other, you know uh, – France saw one, you know, the UK saw it, Sweden saw it, every, every country uh, saw it. So granted, 
there are definitely mistakes that were made, mm-hmm. um, but it's not solely a, a, a U.S. problem. And and to your to the second point about just the the nature of the United States as well, um, I wonder if the the decline of local media specifically, uh, you know, I I I I wonder if um, if that's almost aggravated it in a way. Because now we can, if when I when I talk to people, uh, and I look at what people are a- most angry about, again, like what people are rage clicking or, or rage yep. sharing in a lot of cases, they're typically sharing news that didn't happen where they live and yeah. about people who aren't them. Yeah, yeah, that's really right. Yeah, I think yeah. Um, that's a really the 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 decline of local news is well covered now, and. We don't have a great solution for that. Now, in, mm-hmm. in the business model for the factual, we hope to ultimately get around to fixing that. So okay. you know, one of the things, one of the challenges with rage clicking and why this even exists, of course, is that a lot of news historically has been ad-driven. And yes. even though journalists are, I think journalists for the most part really want to write the stories that matter and communicate it in a, a neutral and unbiased tone, they don't make all the decisions on a piece Mm -hmm. and there's editors and copywriters and ultimately the business. And eventually like a lot of uh, journalists, I don't know that they even get to write their own headlines. That's usually not in their control. Interesting. Yeah. So they write the piece and then the headlines often get uh, manipulated, tested, et cetera, for what works on social, especially. And so what you end up having is a lot of headlines that are far more weighted and loaded than the article. Um, And so that's, been the prevalent model for the last 20 years. <laughs> and now, you know, as the ad market is, has really been eaten by Google and Facebook, a lot of news outlets are really struggling. They're trying to pivot to subscriptions. But uh, many of them have a very undifferentiated product. Hard to build a subscription on that. Factual, what we're doing is we have a subscription model that cuts across all of these news outlets. Uh, and it, it sort of, we think of it as the Spotify for news. So if you're a news lover, this is going to be the best deal in town, a very affordable way to get the best content, to get the best community, and then to have the most convenience, which is getting all of these best articles uh, licensed from these outlets uh, across political spectrum, across the different outlets, so that you don't encounter paywalls. And so okay. that last bit, we'll get to that. That's sort of our phase three in the plan. So phase one is get the best content, which we have now, we think. Phase two is get the best community, which we're about to launch soon mm-hmm. and then phase three is get the best convenience do all the licensing and all that we think if we do that the way that licensing model works um, as we've investigated with a number of outlets we hope that it ends up uh, allowing us to license articles from local news as well when we have large enough contingents of users in different geographies and i don't think this is going to be this is not the be all and end all to save local news but i hope that it's at least one extra revenue stream that we can start giving local news that they can count on. And hey, if we do that enough, then maybe uh, we can allow local news to survive a little bit longer. That's our hope. Yeah. And so you're really, if if phase three, if you reach phase three, that effectively, in a lot of ways, saves reliable journalism. Yeah. Am I, the, am I looking too big here? Or am I, no, am no, I that's, that's yeah. exactly it. That's exactly it. One of the things about our algorithm that's very interesting is there are no popularity metrics. Mm-hmm. There's no popularity. There's no likes, hearts, tweets, shares, 
even backlinks, you know, yeah. a Google thing is, is a little bit of a popularity metric. You don't have that. So the, if you really set back, you know, when we wrote the algorithm, we were like, ah, this is all very fancy tech discussion, big deal. It's just going to rate the New York Times as number one on all the articles. Like, who cares? Yeah. Um, but it didn't do that at all. In fact, the mainstream outlets, the Times, Journal, Post, all these, they rate well, but kind of mid-range in our scoring system. Um, and because we rate individual articles, you know, each outlet can have a range of scores. Yes. But what we found is that it's the specialist outlets that are really, really focused on the topic and have deep expertise in it that rate the highest. Because, of course, they're the ones that have the deepest sources. They tend to write on this topic over and over again and have reporters with deep expertise. So they rank highly on the expertise criteria. And they usually aren't as opinionated just because they know the topic so well. They know it's a difficult topic. It's nuanced. It has a lot of different angles. So they write in a more neutral fashion. And so we found that all these long tail outlets were scoring mm -hmm. really well. And so the upshot of it was when we get to that licensing phase, we don't need to or want to license all the articles from the New York Times or any one outlet, but we'll pick off articles from hundreds of different outlets every day. Uh, and it's just one or two because most people can't outrank everyone else for, uh, for each topic every day. Yeah. But it sort of spreads it around and it rewards quality journalism. It's, it doesn't matter if nobody clicked on your article the day you published it. In our system, if it ranks well because it was authoritative and informative and gives a lot of context, then guess what? We're going to license it on behalf of our users. Hmm. And we don't care if anybody clicks on it or not. That's, that's not how we goal it. We goal it based on quality. That is super interesting. That's and maybe to to bring the the listeners into or to give them a, a crash course in uh, in how people appear online. You know, if we talk about, I'll just take the two ways people typically find the bulk of their information, which is either going to be you know Facebook or Google. Um, both are effectively like you to paraphrase you. They're kind of online part. Uh, popularity contests. So right. if I like an article a lot, if I share an article, if I'm commenting on it, clicking on it, all those things tell Google's and Google and Facebook's algorithms that, hey, people are really into this, so we should send them more stuff like this. And what it does is for Google, it means that as Google learns your behavior, they're going to deliver more information that's similar to the stuff you've clicked on before. Um, in the case of Facebook, it's either going to give you stuff you really like or you really hate. Like it's going to give you stuff that is going to provoke a reaction. And I, I your what you said really validates a, a a theory, and maybe not even a theory I've had, but a theory a lot of people have had, which is that that. Those that mechanism has really changed the way news is delivered. Because if I need to, you know, I'm a business as a newspaper, as a news outlet, um, I need to get eyeballs. And if that means just to maybe bring the New York Times into the fold, if that means as the New York Times, I need to run a story on murder hornets, even though it's entirely blown out of proportion. That's I'm going right. to run that story on murder hornets. And I will, <laughs> I will confess to you, Arjun and everybody else listening. When I saw I that story, I, I didn't even read it. I just shared right away. <laughs> I know. I, I, hear you. I, I didn't even bother to validate it. Yeah. Um, there's, you know, there's, I know we're, we're coming up on the hour and I, I obviously, like I said, I don't want to 
don't want to keep you keep you over your schedule. But um, you know, you're you're originally from Canada, correct? Yeah, yeah. And do you have a feel for how, you know what's the tone there in terms of media and just in terms of, of political discourse? Obviously, uh, you know, Canadians on the whole, not to stereotype, are way more polite than we are. So <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it's. But but by you know if we if we level set for Canada, what's what's the difference? Do you think? Uh, it is definitely toned down in uh, Canada relative to the U.S. Um, so a couple of very big environment variables in Canada. The first is a much smaller population, about a tenth of the United States, spread mm-hmm. out over an area larger than the United States. So very, very spread out, very sparsely populated, except for sort of like the big cities of Toronto and Montreal, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have multiple parties. We don't have just a two-party system in Canada. So it gives a few more perspectives and voices, a lot more coalition governments than uh, pure outright majority governments. Um, It's also a more powerful federal government system. So federal Mm -hmm. politics can be more influential than uh, state politics versus the United States, uh, the federalist system that we have here. States tend to be more powerful. So all those then contribute to sort of a different media landscape uh, in in, in Canada but by and large, um, just nowhere near the range of media outlets and voices in Canada uh, that the United States has. And I think it's just largely just a much, much bigger market in the U.S., right? 10x yeah. everything. So everything is 10x in the U.S. Um, I also think that the United States, the decisions that the U.S. makes affects so many countries around the world, pretty much everyone uh, in some way, shape, or form. And so media covers the U.S., even if you're not in the, me- in the U.S. Yeah. International media covers the U.S. law. International media doesn't have to cover Canada as much. The actions there don't impact the rest of the world as much. So just a much more diverse uh, media landscape in the United States compared to Canada, a smaller landscape there. I would say that the, the tone of voice in writing there is a little less partisan uh, mm. due to the environment variables I mentioned. And uh, yeah, you know, like elections there are not the year-long effort that it happens in the U.S. It's usually a few weeks, maybe. Yeah. If I remember correctly, I think there's even a rule in Canada that they have to turn off um, election ads a few days or weeks before the election, sort of give people a chance to collect their thoughts and make their decisions. So they have these kinds of guidelines that I feel like just tones down the overall um, partisanship and and volume yeah. when it comes to politics and news there. Do, do you think public publicly funded media plays a part as well in, in Canada or not so much? Yeah, a little bit. Uh, the CBC yeah. is a, you know, a, a decent outlet. Um, I think uh, like a lot of publicly funded news outlets, whether it's NPR or the BBC, uh, people feel they tend to skew a little left mm-hmm. as opposed to being truly center. And I think there's an argument to be made for that. It's not, you know, it's it's not a coincidence that business-focused news outlets tend to be more right-leaning. Yeah. And like it's just you see it everywhere, you know, Forbes, Wall Street Journal, whatever. Um, so I do think that there's some argument to be made that uh, public-funded media isn't by itself the answer to all our problems. Um, it's a good yeah. thing. Yeah, no, I, I, in the part of the reason I, I was interested is because um, it's something that came up in a few episodes back about how uh, because of the privatized nature, the fully privatized nature of the U.S., 
uh, of the U.S. media landscape. It is so uh, viewership driven as opposed to anything else. And so, again, when you talk about like the year long, I don't even think it's a year. I think it's a four year campaign cycle now for for president, (laughs) you know, and um, and 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 that's all driven by ratings. I think, you know, being. A, a, a cold-blooded capitalist American, I, I generally love private solutions to mm-hmm. issues like this. And you may have cracked that nut with this, which is which I think is really cool, um, because ultimately what you've what you've developed here is you've got you've got this private sector solution. Um, it has a business model. It 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 makes money and uh, and it also rewards it also sets up the right incentives for news outlets so journalism can actually profit as opposed to you know murder hornets and <laughs> whatever horrible thing comes next so yeah you know i think if if we want to take the very positive view of the us media landscape the good version is there's a lot of great writing out there I mean, some mm-hmm. people won't believe me when I say this, but it's like the golden age of news writing. People are like, are uh, you serious? No one will believe you, no. But yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's the worst time. And actually, no, there's phenomenal writing, but it's lost amidst a sea of garbage writing and mediocre generic writing. And so really at the heart of it, both my co-founder and I, you know, one of the fundamental assumptions we had was this is a search problem. This is not a problem of, let the factual write more news. We're not news people. We, you know, we know that if we write something, I don't think it's going to be you know, a tenth as good as professional journalists, and it's going to have our own biases. So right from the get-go, we are like, we will very seldom write. We are in the business of rate, search, find. That's what we do. And when you do find those really good articles that are written by you know, the amazing journalists who are expert at a topic, give you tons of context, paint the complexity of an issue, you come away feeling like, man, that is, that's good. I feel smarter. I feel like I get this issue. It's hard. It's a complex thing. I have my views on it. But ultimately, if, boy, I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge optimist, uh, Dan. I hope yeah. that somewhere between the tiny role that we play and then the larger cultural context of the U.S., if we can inculcate people to be more empathetic and appreciative of other people's viewpoints and experiences, we could be the strongest country in the world for a very long time because mm-hmm. we do have people out there writing how difficult and challenging issues are. And if we're willing to understand that and, and make hard decisions still, but say, look, I get that this isn't the best decision for everyone. It's the best decision with the information we have. And let's work and sort of pull together as a team. If we believed in our leadership to do that um, and put their communities first, we would be the best. We'd be the strongest. You know, I, the, the opposite, like if you, you could go to other countries where it's like a state-run media and it's one very consistent theme that comes out, and great, everyone's listening to it. I don't think it paints nearly enough complexity, and you've basically just ceded all the trust to your government, saying, okay, well, forget the news. I just trust you guys. We like to do you, you do a good job. But the U.S., that's just not our style. We're, we're skeptical. We, we want to you know, debate things, and that's a good thing. Better decisions are going to come out of it. But it does mean we have to be we have to do it in a way that's respectful to people with different points of view, and that we have to all be gold with the right incentives. So from starting with the news, let's not gold them based on rage, and then ultimately all the way up to politics, let's gold them in a way that makes them feel 
you know, attributable or, or accountable to their communities, make better decisions. Um, all that, I think, yeah, sorry, it's a bit of a long-winded answer, but I feel like the diversity and the, and the challenges, if we can have a good culture around it, mm-hmm. will make for a much, much stronger decision-making uh, model in this, in this country. Final question. If folks want to subscribe to The Factual or get information from, from you all, what's, what are the different ways they can do that right now? Yeah, so the best thing to do is sign up for the newsletter at thefactual.com. Mm-hmm. Um, just an email address and you're done. Uh, you can also follow us on, on social media, either Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Our pages tend to have an abbreviated version of the newsletter also as well. But nothing beats a newsletter. And then uh, you can also go to our site, thefactual.com slash news. That's where we have all the news rated and sorted in a transparent way. So if you're more of a web person, then that's your place. Okay. And I should clarify, this is not a paid endorsement in any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> I'm just a big time Arjun fanboy. Rage clicking. Am I the only one who didn't know that was a thing? Now, if you've been keeping up with the YDHTY blog, and shame on you if you haven't, you'll know from the write-up on the last episode that the problem in the U.S. used to be getting too little information too slow, and now it's getting too much information too fast because with the speed and the volume of news coming at us again from outlets of varied credibility, it is far more likely our biases are going to take over to help us interpret what's going on in the world, leading us to live in these informational habit trails that are separate and distinct from people who think differently than us. And democracies are built on consensus, not ideological purity. And this requires everyone at least come from some sense of a common truth. Now, The next best thing to the invention of the word rage clicking is the fact that companies like The Factual are trying to clean this up. Now, next week, we're back on the campaign trail with J.M. Crevere, Green Party candidate for Michigan's second congressional district, a district that has been represented by a Republican in all but two years since, wait for it, 1935. We're going to talk about his journey from being a Reagan Republican to the Green Party and what it's like running as the far left candidate in such a deep red district. Per usual, music, courtesy of QuellerTac. YDHTY is produced by the big Gino, Jason Putney, in Deep Purple. North Kakalaki. Until the next, this is your resident bod boy signing off. <laughs> 